0: David knows, some of you might not know this, but he's a very communicative person. I send all of our praise team, people involved, both in the sound booth and on stage, uh, kind of the order of service and what we're doing uh, so we can practice on Thursday and all that. And uh, he asked uh, asked me, well... You know, I was out last Sunday, but I know you didn't preach a sermon last Sunday. The last Sunday you preached, you preached through John seven fifty-two, And today you say you're starting at John 8, verse 12. Did I miss something? And I promised him that I would explain what I'm doing here. Um, so uh, I was going to do this even if David hadn't asked. But before I dive into the the message, I'm going to do something that some of you will find extremely boring and some of you will find fascinating. So uh, I feel like one of the reasons I've done the kind of studying that I've done is so that as a pastor I can answer things like this. Uh, Why am I not preaching chapter 7 verse 53 through chapter 8 verse 11? Well, the short answer is it probably was not part of the gospel originally. And this is where we get into what we call textual criticism. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but we don't have any original books of the Bible written in the handwriting of the person who first wrote the book. All we have are copies of copies of copies. At this point, for the New Testament, we have a, over 5,000 manuscripts of varying age going all the way back to 200, somewhere around there. There are some even that go into the hundreds uh, uh, in the, into the second century way back. Um, so uh, some very ancient texts and they go all the way through like the medieval period. I guess at some point we stop including them in the count. But uh, over 5,000. What do, what do scholars do? Well, they, they compare all of these and you'll notice if you're copying something by hand it's easy to accidentally skip a line or, or double a word accidentally if you lose your thought. Uh, there are a lot of Errors that make their way into the transmission process. So, one of the good things is that we have more manuscripts for for the New Testament books than any ancient writing in the world. I mean, you talk about Plato, you talk about uh, you know Suetonius, all these ancient writers. We have a handful of ancient copies of their books, uh, and. Who knows how well that copy was done. But when you have over 5,000 to compare, you really get to a level of of certainty that is so much higher because you can see across the board, uh, if all these people have it this way and these few uh, manuscripts have it a little different, then these are probably the ones that are mistaken. So uh, doing that, um, scholars try to group manuscripts in geographical areas based on where they find them. Uh, they call these textual families so one major group is in the north of Africa Alexandria was the the center of learning in the first century all the smartest people in the world were in Alexandria so that's one group of, of, of texts some are around the territory of Canaan uh, they call that the Caesarean uh, text a little further north in what we would call Turkey today the Byzantine family of texts and then the Western or Occidental which would be out towards the Rome and Italy and that area of the ancient world. So those are kind of the four main areas in which manuscripts tend to have the similar readings uh, and variations tend to follow the pattern based on the family. Well, if we look at all of these four major families of texts and go to the primary texts in each family, in other words, the best quality, oldest manuscript we found in that area of the world, Uh, With the Alexandrian, uh, our two oldest manuscripts, they're from the early AD 200s, P66 and P75. Um, These are considered primary witnesses in the Alexandrian family, which is generally considered the most reliable of the textual families. Uh, Verses 753 through 811 are absent. Uh, from their copies, both of those. Uh, also, the testimony of Origen, who was an early church father around AD 250, he also mentions in his writings that those verses were not present. Uh, and he's considered a primary witness for the Alexandrian family. The C- Caesarean family, uh, W, is considered one of their primary texts from AD 300 to 400. Theta is considered another of their primary texts from about AD 800. And neither of these are these verses found. The Byzantine text, which generally tends to be later, but they happen to have one manuscript, A, which dates back to A.D. 475. Uh, in that manuscript, these verses are not found. The verses are not found in the lectionaries of the Greek church. They're not found in the old Latin version of the Bible. They're not found in the Syriac versions of the Bible. And Tatian, who wrote a harmony of the Gospels around 170 AD called the Diatessaron, he did not include this story in his uh, harmony of the Gospels. There are places, though, it starts cropping into the, the Bible, right? It starts showing up in texts. The oldest is D which is one of the Western family of texts. And D dates to about 400 A.D. So we're talking about 200 years later than the P66 and P75. Uh, And about A.D. 400 is the the earliest text where these verses appear. It also appears in four texts that date from about A.D. 700 to 1,000. But in those texts, it's marked, marked by the scribe with an asterisk, which was the way scribes indicated that they think that this probably was not part of the original, but uh, they, it was in the copy they happened to be making, so they're including it, but with this little note to indicate there's questionable, uh, there, there's some question about the authenticity of it. One text, uh, Lambda, Lambda Uh, about A.D. 800, includes not not the whole thing, but just 8 verses 3 through 11, and also puts an asterisk next to it. It also appears in a family of texts known as F-13, and this is uh, one of the considered primary witnesses. I believe it's in the Western family. Uh, A.D. 1000 to 1400, but in this group of texts, It it is inserted not in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Luke, right after chapter 21, verse 38. There's one manuscript, 225, from A.D. 1192, that places the verses after John 736, instead of after 752. Another uh, designated one, uh, from about A.D. 1100, places it after John 2125, at the end of the Gospel, with a critical note. And there's one more, 1333, from about A.D. 1000. And he, in this manuscript, it's placed after Luke 24, 53. So what do we make of this? Well, the witness of three uh, of the best manuscripts and three of the four major textual families uh, all omitted. These verses are not found there. Uh, the one family that does include it and has an old text that includes it AD 400 uh, is generally considered one of the less reliable families there was more of a tendency to be a little careless with the copying uh, in that group of texts but the fact that it shows up so early makes a lot of people think that uh, this probably uh, is actually reflecting a genuine oral tradition regarding Jesus So there were many things that Jesus did and happened in Jesus' life. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote down for us. I think especially Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke uh, rely heavily on the oral tradition and, and include a lot of the things that are part of the memorized things people knew about Jesus and his ministry. But for some reason, this particular story didn't make it in. They did not include it, and perhaps at some point, somebody fearing that this story about Jesus might be lost, they inserted it into the Gospel of John, somewhere around 400 A.D. So it might actually reflect an actual thing that happened, but in terms of canon, in terms of how God reveals Scripture and what we understand to be Scripture, I think uh, that we should not consider it Scripture. Uh, Even just because it happened historically doesn't mean that God intended for it to form part of his canon. But I will say this about verses 753 through 811. There's nothing in this story. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. You're probably very familiar with it. There's nothing in these verses that is heretical. There's nothing here that would change what you think about the New Testament message if you included it in your New Testament. It's also true that these verses do not contain any teaching that is not found elsewhere in the New Testament canon. So if you do not consider them scripture, you're not going to rob yourself of important teaching. There's no key theological concept found in this story that's found nowhere else. Uh, So having said all of that, I think God guarded the process of transmission so that the textual variants that are there do not compromise the integrity of the New Testament canon but uh i i believe john did not write this and therefore i'm not going to preach on these verses um, so that's why we're starting at chapter 8 verse 12. okay now that i got past the boring part let's actually look at, at the scripture we're looking at today have you ever considered how important light is i mean obviously the most basic thing is if we didn't have light if the sun weren't there, there there'd be no life. We would die of cold and there would be no life on earth. But not just the warmth that light produces, but uh, for most of us, Light is vitally important because we need light to be able to interpret the world around us. We cannot navigate this world without light. We can't see what's there. We can't get around uh, without the light to reveal to us what's around us. Uh, Let me tell you, I love the building, the facilities we have. I love our education building over there. But maybe you've had my experience that you've happened to be stuck over there at night sometime. Have you ever tried to navigate the education building in the dark? All of a sudden, you forget that this is a house of God. It's like you're in a horror movie. It's, it's just the spookiest thing because you can't see squat. There aren't windows. It's just darkness everywhere, and it's, you realize very quickly how much we need light, how appreciated light is. And doesn't light become a great metaphor for all kinds of things, understanding warmth, the goodness of life? That's what Jesus is talking about in today's passage. So let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. I've titled the message today, The Light of Life. Let's read verse 12. So Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the cosmos. The one who follows me will never ever walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think to understand what Jesus is doing here, it helps if we understand a little bit about what Jews did in the first century with the Festival of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Not only did they live in booths to commemorate the 40 years in the wilderness that God provided for Israel and cared for them for 40 years, and that he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but they did this at the end of the conclusion of the end gathering of the harvest, and it was an, a feast of gratitude to God for his provision that he 's provided food, and everything we have we owe to God, so it was a celebration of that, and uh, they had incorporated some things that were not in the law of Moses, but there were their, there were their ways of responding to the pagan world around them. One of them was that uh, every morning they would take water from the pool of Siloam and bring it and pour it out at the feet of the altar. Now, in antiquity, the, the pagans felt that the way you guaranteed rain and the way you guaranteed that there would be plenty of water for the crops to be uh, abundant and for you to have plenty of food to eat was to uh, do whatever the gods required of you. And for them, most of the time, it had something to do with sexuality. There would be ritual prostitution at the temple and sacrifices of animals. And they would uh, basically invest sexual energy in the worship of these gods so that that would guarantee... Plenty of water for their crops. Well, the Jews said the only person we ask for rain is God. And we just we don't do it through some perverted approach to human sexuality, but we bring water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out at the feet of the altar, recognizing that God alone is the one who provides us with the water we need and the crops we grow. And uh, another thing they did was every night throughout the festival when it was getting dark, they would light up chandeliers in the court of women. This was the part of the temple area where any Jewish person could come male or female uh, and they would light up they would have these chandeliers lit and they would have them burning through the night all the way until dawn and what they would do they would set up musicians on the 15 steps that connected the court of women to the court of Israel where only Jewish males were allowed and on those steps the musicians would lead in songs of worship and all night long they would be dancing and praising God and thanking him. For his provision. It was uh, very much a response to the pagan practices that were so over sexualized and uh, the Bacchanal type things it was their response to them a celebration of light and life and gratitude to God for every good thing without all of the nastiness of perversion and and twisted sexuality and greedy uh, approaches to sexuality that were common in pagan feasts where you just get drunk and and uh, do all this kind of crazy stuff it was a Celebration of light and life. Every night until dawn, they did this. So Jesus, in the verses before this, talks to them about uh, providing with rivers of living water that would flow from within. Now he talks about light. He's talking about the other symbol that's a part of their celebration in this feast, and he says, "I." And the light of the cosmos. That word could be translated world. But I think uh, we need to understand the way the ancients meant the word. For them, world was everything. The world is the world you walk on. It includes the underworld and the above area. The sky that is beyond your access. But that's the world. It's everything. They didn't think of the world as one tiny planet spinning around in the midst of a whole bunch of different planets. To them, cosmos was creation. It was everything. So I think that's the sense in which Jesus is saying this. Not just I'm the the light of this planet. I am the light of creation. I am the light of the cosmos. I am the light you are celebrating every night. That defiant act of worship and celebration under the heel of Roman oppression. That celebration of confidence and life and light. I am that light come to you. I am the light of the cosmos. The one who follows me. Jesus has been saying in a lot of these passages, you need to believe in me. I think now he helps us understand what believing in him involves. It's uh, not just believing something about him, but a trust, a relational trust, in which we follow after him. We become apprenticed to him in life. Anyone who follows me will never, ever walk in darkness. In the Greek, that's a double negative no, not. (coughs) Never, ever. Walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a dominant theme in John's gospel. Jesus is constantly talking about giving us life, both in quality, abundant life, and in uh, extension, eternal life. Everything they're celebrating in that festival is what he has come to deliver. (coughs) He is the answer to those acts of worship. Come to them to deliver what they're trying to celebrate. You might think, okay, I've been following Jesus, and this bit about never ever walking in darkness, there have been some tremendously dark days for me. What is Jesus talking about? And I think what Jesus means to say by this is not that darkness will not be around us. In fact, there are times when he's going to lead us through the very heart of darkness. He's going to lead us through some of the darkest places we could conceive of. What he means is that that's not going to be our true path. We are journeying through, but this is not our place of residence. And the fact that Jesus is our light of life means that no matter where we are, darkness is not the dominant reality of our existence. Light is Because there's no darkness that can quench the light of life. That is why we can say in Christ we never, ever walk in darkness. Not because we don't experience the darkness around us, but because light remains the the guaranteeing truth of our existence in Christ. I have a question from this verse. Jesus made a simple offer. Believe in me, and darkness will never be your path. You will have the light of life. Given the continued presence of sin in the world and in ourselves, in what way does Jesus remove us permanently from the path of darkness? Let's keep reading verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, And said to them, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I am going. You are judging according to the flesh. I've said this before. These chapters, 7, 8, and 9, are really frustrating chapters. Because Jesus is continually making these glorious offers. Of life and light and living waters. I mean, what more could you ask for? God has showed up and answered the prayers of the human race over the centuries. He's come to provide everything we ever wanted. And the response constantly is, that's not true. You're lying. That's not right. Over and over and over, and it gets frustrating after a while. And it's the same here, and it's going to continue into chapter 9. Jesus has just said, This thing you're celebrating, it's arrived. I came. I am the light of life. God has heard your pleas, and He's here. They say, You're bearing witness about yourself, you're lying it is true. If you're the one testifying on your behalf, your testimony is suspect, right? Because people tend to bend things to their own advantage. But to assume that just because Jesus is saying something about himself, he has to be lying is quite a stretch. It is possible for a person to say something accurate and true about himself. Just the fact that Jesus is talking about himself doesn't mean he's lying, and Jesus doesn't back down. He says, you know, even if I'm the only one bearing witness about me, I'm telling the truth. And I, I love that Jesus kind of challenges us to show exactly where it is he's lying to us. Now, anybody else who said the kinds of things Jesus said, you know, I and the Father are, are one, uh, Before Abraham was, I am. uh, Unless you believe in me, you you do not have life. Any human being who said that kind of stuff would be a megalomaniac of the worst kind. And we've seen people come across the stage of human history saying these kinds of things. And you know what they do? They gather for themselves a large crowd of people who believe they are what they say they are. And they proceed to take all their money and their wives. It's happened over and over. You would think people would realize, you know, this has been happening a lot of times. Maybe this is just another charlatan. That has happened over and over. So where did Jesus, where's his con? Whose wife did he take? He never even got married. He never used another human being to satisfy something he wanted. Where is the monetary gain? Where did he fleece people of their money? Where's the con? Where's the lie? And we're left with the uncomfortable question. Maybe, even though what he's saying is audaciously, absurdly grand, what if he's telling the truth? What if he's not lying at all? What if he really is God who has come to give us life? Even if I'm the only one bearing witness, my testimony is true. I am not lying. And he also says, I know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus is operating in a different sphere of, of working. And he's constantly been saying this I come from the Father, I come from above. I come from outside of this cosmos. That's where I'm from. I know exactly where I come from, and I know where I'm going. I know what I'm here to do. I'm not here on earth trying to figure it out the way all of you are. I know exactly why I'm here. I know what's ahead. I know I've come to die. I know I've come to shed my blood. I know I've come to rescue creation from sin and death I know exactly what I'm here to do and even with the the limitations he allowed upon himself in the years of his earthly ministry and emptying himself of glory the way he did he knew exactly what he was here to do and his frame of reference was the heart and mind of God that's what was grounding everything about him That's why he says, you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You don't know anything about God who has now come to you and is standing before you. And you don't know anything about what I am going to accomplish and what I am returning to. You absolutely are excluded from what God has to contribute to your conversation because you don't know anything about him. It's sad how often religious experts don't know a thing about God. Not the first thing about him. You can be a religious expert. You can be at the top of your field in religious expertise and not know a thing about God. That's what Jesus is saying. You are judging according to the flesh. I think Jesus is using this phrase just the way Paul used it. Flesh is a way of saying there's this God sphere of information. That's what I'm operating out of. And then there's the everything else sphere. Let's call it flesh. Anything other than God. Anything you draw on, all those rabbinic traditions you have committed to memory faithfully, all these uh, rulings of rabbis past on on uh, uh, theological questions and debates, all this information you've been amassing and gathering, you are accumulating information based on what human beings can offer you. You are working within the sphere of the created world. And I'm telling you, there's another frame of reference that is not dependent on this creation. That's what I'm operating out of. You guys are operating out of this. Flesh. I have a question from these verses. Jesus spoke from the perspective of God incarnate with perfect knowledge of his origin, plan, and purpose in the Incarnation. His opponents did not know God and could only draw on the things around them for their opinions. How does knowing God change everything about our perspective? Let's keep reading, finishing verse 15. I am not judging anyone. But even if I should judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone, but I and the one who sent me, the Father. And in your law, it has also been written that the testimony of two persons is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the one who sent me, the Father, bears witness. It might seem that Jesus is contradicting himself. I am not judging anyone. In chapter 5, he already said he's going to judge everybody. And uh, he even goes on to say, well, okay, even when I judge? And he's going to make it clear that, yes, he is going to judge everyone. So what what is he saying when he says, I am not judging anyone? I think some people kind of snap out phrases like this from Jesus to say that uh, he's never going to judge anybody. I think what Jesus means to say is, I'm not judging anyone the way you guys are judging. I, I don't judge from the perspective of the flesh. I don't base my judgment on the frame of reference you guys are using. My judgment is the judgment of the Father. My judgment is the judgment that only God Almighty, who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, who knows everything that could be known, and who is omnibenevolent, who in everything is always good, When I talk about judging, that's what I'm talking about. Not what you guys are doing now. You know what these guys he's talking to are judging? They're trying to figure out how they can use the law of Moses to get Jesus killed. What ruling, what rabbi, what what teaching they can appeal to to justify the murder of Jesus. That's what they're working on. That's the kind of judging they're doing. Jesus says, that's not what I've come here to do. In fact, later on in chapter 12, he'll say, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. And it is true. There will be a final reckoning and a point at which Jesus will say to all those who have rejected him and said, we're not interested in the life you are offering us. There will come a moment of reckoning in which Jesus will say, that was your choice. I will honor it. But Jesus didn't come to condemn you. You're already condemned. He came to save you, to offer you an alternative. And it's on you whether you receive it or not. He didn't come to seal your fate. It was already a a taken care of matter. Sin is already in you. You're already broken. You're already dead. He came to offer life if you want it. You don't have to take it, I guess. But even if I should judge, the reason my judgment is true is it's not just me. You cannot separate my judgment from the Father's judgment. There's no parsing God. There's no separating out God. Notice in verse 17, and in your law, it seems like Jesus is saying the law of Moses is not for me, it's for you guys. You guys keep your law, i got something else. And that's really not what Jesus taught. We know from Matthew 5 that Jesus affirmed the authority of the, the law and the prophets, the full canon of Scripture. So he's not rejecting Scripture. What he's rejecting, and he consistently did this throughout his ministry, was the rabbinic traditions. The way they had built a layer of rabbinic teaching onto the scriptures in such a way that it uh, appropriated God's word and made it their law. In fact, let's not forget, they're trying to use their law to kill Jesus. So when he says your law, he's talking about the way they've tried to take over God's word and make it their law. Uh, law it has to mean what we say and it can't mean anything else and Jesus deliberately trampled all over the traditions of the elders but in your law even in your body of accepted interpretation of law you uh, have recognized that two testimonies two people giving witness on on, on on a case establish the veracity of the witness in the law of Moses you couldn't condemn someone to death without two verifying witnesses of the crime and they took that to mean that if you have two people giving testimony, that establishes the, the testimony as true. So Jesus says, you need two witnesses? Okay, I'll be one. I'm telling you who I am. I'm not being, uh, I'm not hiding it. I'm not, I'm not being obscure about it. I'm telling you clearly who I am and what I'm here to do. And the one who sent me, the Father, Bears witness. Now, in this particular instance, Jesus doesn't spell out in what way the Father is bearing witness to him. But we know multiple things. At his baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father took the most respected prophet of the first century, John the Baptist, and instructed him to bear witness uh, in favor of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom of the people of God. Who do you think told John the Baptist to say all that stuff? If not the Father. And Jews believe that there's only one God. All these things that other people worship are man-made inventions. There is no such thing as another God out there. Human beings don't have the power to walk on water, to raise the dead, to heal a paralytic or a man born blind. Human beings can't do that stuff. So how did Jesus do that stuff? if not by the Father. So, yeah, I'm saying stuff, but you know what? Omnipotent God Almighty is backing everything I'm saying up. Verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, teaching in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. There are two things they might have been saying with that question, at least, possibly more. I can think of two things. Uh, When Jesus says all this about his father, and they know he's talking about God. Perhaps they're trying to get him to ground himself back in reality. Where's your father? Now, we know from the Gospels, it appears that uh, Joseph has already passed away by the time Jesus is doing his public ministry. The reason I say that is we have in the Gospels mentions of his mother, his brothers, his sisters, but nobody ever talks about his father, Joseph. Joseph. So uh, it's very likely that he had already passed away by the time he's doing his public ministry. So perhaps this question is simply their way of saying, uh, "Who, who exact, where is your father? As a way of kind of grounding Jesus and reminding him, wait a minute, you have a, a human father just like everybody else does. You didn't just pop up here out of nowhere. You, uh, have, you were begotten by somebody just the way we all are. Maybe that's what they're saying. Maybe it's a little more nefarious than that. Maybe they've heard rumors. Maybe they've been trying to dig up dirt on Jesus. And in a small town like Nazareth, I'm sure that there were people who remembered that Mary got pregnant before she was married. You know, a small town like Nazareth, that kind of thing doesn't stay a secret Uh, And she left the town when she gave birth to Jesus. She was in Bethlehem. But um, surely there were whispers as to what exactly happened, who might be the father, because Joseph was such an upstanding, nice guy. Surely it wasn't him. What, What did Mary get into? I'm sure that might be something in the background here. And maybe they're saying, Jesus, you don't even know who your father is. What do you mean God's your father? You're not even a legitimate child. That might be what they're insinuating with the question. Either way, they're clearly not suggesting that God Almighty is his Father. Where's your Father? And Jesus, again, doesn't back away. You don't know me. You don't know my Father. If you knew me, by knowing me, you would already know the Father. We're talking about God. You want to know God. Here I am. That's what Jesus is saying. You want to know who God is? I'm here talking to you face to face. This God you supposedly are experts in. And if you know me, you know the Father. You know what your problem is? You don't know either. You don't know the God who has been working through the history of Israel and has revealed the Holy Scriptures to the prophets of old. You don't know that God? And you don't know that God who has now come to you in the flesh and stands before you, speaking to you, and offering to you life and light eternal. And you're bickering about it. You don't know the first thing about God. And you don't know the God Almighty. You don't know the God who has come to you in the miracle of the incarnation. And here's the thing. You can't know the big God and have the God come in the flesh standing before you and say, I'm not interested in you, Jesus. I'll just have the big God. Because it's the same God. And if what John is telling us is true, if Jesus is the supreme expression of God communicating with us his message of life, he is the culminating communication from God, then we cannot reject Jesus and plan on still getting to God. We can't. John says once more. He said this right there in the temple. And he basically equates himself with God the Father. And yet nobody arrested him. You know why? It wasn't the right time. And here's the thing. God is sovereign. He runs the universe. Sometimes we forget it because he has given us a lot of leeway. There are a whole lot of things he lets us do. Horrible, terrible things. But you know, when the fate of creation hangs in the balance, God says, it's not going to happen until I say it's going to happen. And Jesus' arrest will not happen until it's the right moment. They want to do it right away. They would love to have him dead now. But the Father does not allow it. His hour had not yet come. Therefore, nobody was going to be able to arrest him until the right moment arrived have a final question. Jesus and the Father are one God at work among us in two ways. To refuse Jesus is to refuse God and his offer of light and life. The religious experts in Jerusalem felt they didn't need Jesus to find God. How do people try to find God while rejecting Jesus today? Jesus came... To answer the cry of our souls. He came to give us life and light. To free us from darkness. Not just the darkness in the world around us. Let's be honest. The darkness we carry within. That's the most troubling bit of it. That I'm my own worst problem. He came to make it so that I never have to walk in darkness he is the light of the cosmos and wants to illuminate our lives perfectly forever if we will follow him darkness will never be our path we can accept the invitation and enter into this journey or we can quibble and argue and fight We can debate. We can try to rationalize our selfish patterns of living and our non need for rescue from sin. We can try to convince ourselves that sin is a construct, that there's no such thing, that the reason I hate myself has to be that I've just, my parents taught me wrong. It's somebody else's fault. But if you recognize there's a problem, Jesus says, I've come to solve it. Everything he said has been backed by everything he did. There are people the world over today who can bear witness, I'm one of them, that my life has been radically transformed by Jesus. I know what I was. I know what I am. And he's the only reason for that difference. I know it. He doesn't just talk about life and light. He delivers it. I want to invite you today, if you don't know Jesus as the light and the life of your world, that you surrender your heart to him today and let him become that to you. Let me say a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, free us from darkness. Bring us your light. Fill us with your life. Give us the courage to see through our own lies to the truth you place before us and help us to latch onto you and nothing else in this life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.